You're listening to Across the Table, a healthcare private equity podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods. Across the Table brings you inside the conversation with the specialists and professionals of the healthcare private equity industry. Hello and welcome to the Across the Table podcast, a McGuire Woods private equity podcast focused on healthcare private equity transactions. I'm Amber Walsh. And I am often joined by my co-host on this podcast series, Seth Cockrell and Holly Buckley. Today, I am hosting on my own and very pleased to be joined by three of my Seth and Ann colleagues at McGuire Woods. I'm joined today by Ying Shu, Penny Zacharias, and Clayton Stahlbomber. They are three very experienced debt finance partners who happen to do a lot of work on sponsor-backed lending transactions in the healthcare deal space with a particular emphasis on the borrower side. And that's really what we're going to be talking about today in this episode, looking at these healthcare lending transactions from the borrower perspective. I'm going to have each one of my partners tell you a little bit about their practice as we kick off. So I won't do that right now. Instead, I'm going to go straight into the conversation. And Penny, I'm going to start with you to have you talk to us a little bit about the borrower's power, that ability to attract favorable terms in the present lending landscape. And you have used the phrase to us, the swinging pendulum. So I'd love to have you kick us off today by sharing your views. Thanks, Amber. And I'll just give a quick overview on my background. As you mentioned, I do a lot of borrower side, company side, you know, sponsor backed lending transactions. And in addition to working a lot in the healthcare industry, a lot of my practice includes security alarm companies, companies with recurring monthly revenue streams, and very separately, Sort of a look into impact investing in this space and kind of more recently a lot of sponsor clients asking about ESG factors. So those are some newer things that we've been working on. And in addition to Amber, I am the other co-chair of the firm's Women in Private Equity and Finance Initiative that, that we've been running for many years. With respect to your question about the borrower's power or you know leverage in these transactions, I think The swinging pendulum comment that I made prior was really just to emphasize, depending on the environment, one party tends to have more leverage than the other, just as a general matter. And I think as we're emerging from the pandemic and we're looking at a lot of liquidity that's out there that companies, a lot of companies are experiencing right now, we do see a pretty competitive environment for lenders. Particularly, there are a lot of lenders out there, particularly now, not just commercial, you know, sort of more traditional banking lenders, but also this emergence of private debt funds and other non-bank lenders. So I would say for a generally healthy or fairly healthy company, certainly there is some leverage out there presently. Thank you, Penny. I am sure that our sponsor borrower clients will appreciate hearing that, so thank you. I'd actually like to talk a little bit about that relationship between lenders and borrowers more generally. And 
Clayton, I'm going to ask you, what can you share on the good, the bad, and the ugly, the, the tips for borrowers and lenders on building strong relationships and maybe even some of the pitfalls to avoid? Sure. Thank you, Amber. Just by way of background, I am a partner in the debt finance group in the Chicago office of McGuire Woods. I've been working on borrower and lender side transactions for the better part of 15 years. One thing I'll say about Penny and, and, and Yang and I is that we and others in our group still do a lot of lender side work as well. We, we, we focus on some borrower side work, but we all have a pretty good mix of work. And I think that gives us a good perspective on sort of what are important asks, what, you know, how do these relationships get built? We've seen kind of both sides from the lender and the borrower's perspective, but it really is important for borrowers, private equity firms to think about these relationships as relationships, right? These are not where we've seen private equity firms have a lot of success is where they look, you know, they have a longer term perspective, right? They lower their time preference. They look at not just this one transaction, but this as a series of transactions, a longer term relationship where they build up trust, they build up alliance with their lender partners. That's not to say that they are deferential. We see plenty of successful private equity firms able to stand up, ask confidently for what they want and what they need, and there's a good back and forth with the lenders. So kind of the first bit of advice would be to really think of it, look at the long term, think of it as a relationship. Another thing that you know we've seen borrowers have good success with on the private equity side is you can't really over-communicate with lenders. Right, lenders don't like surprises. Lenders can't always react quickly to surprises. So, having good open lines of communication, honest communication, can be very important, very beneficial to private equity firms and and their portfolio company borrowers. That doesn't mean that everything's presented without context. Certainly, where we've seen private equity firms and, and their portfolio company borrowers have a lot of success is really kind of framing their, their communications in a way that is honest but beneficial to them and kind of puts any issues out there in a way that works to their advantage, gets them kind of positioned with the lender to make arguments in good faith for what they think they need in terms of accommodations or pricing or you know, any of the other terms that go into these lending relationships. The last bit of advice would be to operate in good faith. And by way of one example of this, you know, over the past 15 months where lenders and borrowers have been kind of working through uncharted territory, kind of trying to figure out how to adapt in the face of the pandemic and the response to the pandemic, we've seen borrowers, one particular issue, kind of ask for EBITDA adjustments, you know, in their financial covenants, for example, related to you know, how COVID or how the pandemic or the response to the pandemic affected their business and where we've seen kind of tension build up between borrowers and lenders is where the private equity firms or their borrower clients hadn't really thought through what they needed or were kind of just reaching for whatever they could get. Where we saw some success was with private equity firms who took a really thorough look at their portfolio company's business figured out how their business was impacted by COVID and made good faith arguments requests to the lenders to you know account for those things. And a little bit of good faith goes a long way in 
strengthening those borrower-lender relationships. That's really helpful, Clayton. Really interesting. And, and you alluded to the, the long-term nature of the relationship, didn't allude to it. Uh, you spoke very clearly to the long-term nature of it and kind of a series of transactions. I actually want to ask about that a little bit. And, and Penny, maybe I'll go back to you and talk about very specifically borrowers who the lender knows is going to be highly acquisitive after closing the credit facility. So any additional tips, um, maybe best processes for handling add-on acquisitions and anything you can do on the front end when you're establishing the credit facility in the first place to kind of build in some more streamlined processes? Yeah, and I think that two points that Clayton just made are really, really good ones that can be applied across many of these scenarios. I mean, the first one being understanding that this is a long-term relationship you're going to enter into with the lender. It's not just like you're signing a purchase agreement and a lot of those representations and, you know, other agreements are made on the day of the closing and, you know, sort of parties go their own ways after that closing, right? With the credit facility, these covenants and these reps, I mean, they live on for the life of the facility. So it is very important to get the flexibility and have a clear understanding of what the objectives are prior to signing one of these facilities into place. And the other point that is really important with respect to making sure well, that you are going to have enough flexibility with add-on acquisitions is the communication, right? Certainly getting as much built into the existing, the initial credit agreement as you can regarding flexibility to grow the business is going to be important. And you're not going to get that from your lender if you're not fully communicating what the overall strategy is going to be to achieve that growth. So things like consideration baskets should be realistic yet ample for that growth, making sure that whatever the lender is going to ask for by way of diligence on any add-on acquisition, again, is realistic but not overbearing for the company. I think that the more a company can share with a lender at this outset about the growth trajectory of the business, the better off the parties are going to be. The lender is going to want to know that the business isn't veering off into some other direction other than the one for which it's getting its initial approval. So that, I mean, really thinking of your lender as a, as a partner there will be able to afford the company a greater level of flexibility negotiating those points at the outset. That's super helpful, Penny. Thank you. So, Ying, I want to bring you into the conversation. Talk to us a little bit about closing the credit facility. Any particular pain points of which sponsors and their borrower portfolios in healthcare private equity deals specifically should be aware? Sure, yeah. Thanks, Amber. Just to add on to what Clayton said earlier about our practice, I'm also a partner in the Chicago office with Clayton, and we do a lot of both borrower side and lender side work. I in particular have done a lot of ABO work and healthcare work, a lot of which has overlapped, but it has put us in a unique position to be able to speak to a lot of sort of pain points for the closing process. So I think there's a few things to keep in mind. The first is something that Penny has just alluded to, which is keeping an eye on what 
the business might need going forward, especially for companies that intend to be acquisitive. Just thinking through the closing process and making sure that the documentation is building in the necessary flexibility sort of going forward. The next is a little bit more, I suppose, mundane in some ways, but very important, which is that lenders will always have a fairly typical set of closing requirements for every deal. And they may vary a little bit if it's a cash flow deal versus an ABL deal, but there will be pretty standard set of diligence requirements and closing requirements. And there is nothing that takes the place of being hyper-organized about closing deliverables to make the process go as smooth as possible. So especially in our healthcare deals, you know, there's often an acquisition going on at the same time. Sometimes there's senior debt and mes debt. Sometimes there's also shareholder debt or seller debt. And so when you're juggling all these different pieces, having that level of organization of knowing all the org docs are in order, we know who the officers are for each entity. I mean, it sounds in some ways extremely basic, but can be super helpful in keeping the process running smoothly, which then will also keep legal fees at a minimum, which I know are always, always a hot topic for these closings. And as a related matter, one particular area we've seen that has been sort of painful, especially in the COVID era, is chasing down original signature pages for closing. So it's, it's one of those things where I've started asking lender groups, the front of a transaction, okay, what are your signature requirements? Do you need originals? Can you close on PDFs? Can the PDFs be DocuSign or do they have to be wet ink? So a lot of these questions, which seem like they shouldn't be that big of a deal, can sometimes be challenging, especially if people are you know, working remotely and traveling. It's good to get a good handle on those closing mechanics so there's no surprises you know, the night before we're trying to fund the deal. And the last particular pain point I think I'd mentioned, especially for healthcare deals, is making sure that we understand what cash management requirements a lender is going to require for closing. So healthcare deals in particular, and especially when you've got an ABL deal and with a lot of different entities and a lot of different billing numbers, the lenders are always going to want to know where the cash is going in the business and how the flow up through the chain to get to the parent company and do the lenders have a perfected position on that cash? And, w- and where in that process is there any potential for any breakdown? So knowing upfront what the lender is going to require in terms of perfection over cash is something that, that is important because sometimes that has the potential to either delay closing or create, at a minimum, a, a little bit of a, a, a roadblock to making sure that the lenders are satisfied with, with how the cash management is set up for closing purposes. Yeah, and one thing I'd add there, too, is that this is where kind of the relationship issues come back into it. If a private equity firm has a history, has done you know, transactions with a particular lender before, the lender has a sense of really how trustworthy that private equity firm is, right? And if they say, how we have it set up, realistically, when we can get it transitioned to how you want it, there can be some accommodation and flexibility if it's within the kind of lender's underwriting parameters to do that. But not having that relationship or, or having you know a relationship that, that doesn't have as much trust in it or as much history in it, that's where you can see some less flexibility for those kinds of things. I totally agree, Clayton. I feel like it probably is, as we've been speaking to all along through this session, it all comes back to the relationship between the lender and the borrowers. One other point on that is Ying touched on some examples in particular that 
given the particulars of a deal, might make things more complicated or you would just have to allow more time to kind of get in place like the cash management. Another piece is sort of the more parties, right? I mean, if there are like additional investors or co-equity investors involved, if it's an acquisition financing and you're hunting down consents or comments or last-minute requests, I mean, that all really just building in a cushion for that to manage closing date expectations is pretty important too. They're all very helpful tips. And I want to actually turn to a different topic, but still certainly in your area's expertise. And that is you've built this relationship, closed a credit facility. Hopefully it's been successful for all the reasons that we've talked about. How does the sponsor back borrower know when it's time to refi? So I will let any of you take that but I think that'd be a a great way to wrap us up today. I'll kick this off. I mean, I think (laughs) there could be a lot of different things, right? I mean, if things, you know, if there's been a performance issue with the company, but not something fatal or something that can be righted fairly kind of with the right adjustments and the company's just not getting the support or kind of getting hit with fees or sort of unnecessary hoops to jump through, but yet there seems to be other interest from the market. I mean, sometimes you just know and to harp on the relationship we've all been talking about, I think the stronger your relationship is, the less likely you're going to necessarily see those warning signs, right? If there's been this open line of communication, but I mean, every institution kind of has its own pain points when Things don't necessarily go right, but if it's a situation where the company's just experiencing a lot of growth or a change in structure is needed for some reason, sometimes the need for change just becomes apparent. And I mean, sometimes you're getting solicited with other interests and, you know, other times you have to seek it out. It really just depends on the performance of the company and what the future needs are. I know that was a very broad answer, but it depends if there's some sort of prepayment penalty that's at play, I mean, that can be a pretty significant determining factor of not changing, right? So I think um, companies need to be pretty strategic when, when thinking about that decision. We also see lenders from time to time enter into or exit out of particular market segments, particular industries. And if there's a sponsor-backed borrower that's in a particular industry, that a lender starts to lose its taste for or interest in or ability to support, that's certainly a sign. Part of having these strong relationships with the lenders is that sponsor back borrowers can, can trust that they're getting fair and market terms from those lenders, but they can also go out and verify in the market, right? So if, if, if there are specific kind of economic terms or business terms around kind of what they're trying to do, either kind of at the outset and, and whether that's changed over the course of uh, facility, they can go out and test the market knowing that even if they're not, you know, even if they still have the support of their existing lender, they can go out and get an honest read from the rest of the market. And, you know, depending on if the market is more favorable to them or their particular direction at that point in time, if they have a strong relationship with their existing lender, they can work with that lender to see if that's a direction that their existing lender is willing to go. If it's not, or if they get more favorable sort of response from the rest of the market, that may be a good sign that it's that it's time to move on or at least seriously consider it. 
Yeah, and just to add on to what Clayton was saying, I you know I've certainly seen it where a particular borrower has just grown over time, and the footprint of maybe where their existing lender is is not necessarily where they they need the footprint of their local offices to be for future banking needs. And so sometimes it's not a negative thing at all. Sometimes it's just a matter of growth, and and oftentimes if that existing lender relationship is good, sometimes those lenders stay involved in the lending relationship moving forward. But yeah, I, I just you know I would agree with with Clayton and uh, Penny that there's a lot of different factors that that go into that decision. Well, thank you all so much for your insight. It's fun to do a podcast with my partners, and your insight is really helpful. And definitely, we'll be asking you to come join us again. But for right now, there's lots of deals going on, so uh, we will sign off and get back to our deal work. Thank you to Penny, Clayton, and Ying, and to our listeners on the Across the Table podcast. We appreciate you joining us on this episode of Across the Table. To learn more about today's discussion or to contact us, please visit our website at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.